am now delighted to introduce to you today our speaker, our speaker Annalise Heinz, who is an assistant professor of history and an affiliated faculty member in Asian Studies and Women and Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Oregon. A historian of modern America, Professor Heinz focuses her research on the intersections of gender, race, ethnicity, and sexuality. In examining the development of racial ideologies, her work is also in conversation with the growing field of trans-Pacific history, examining the flows of peoples, goods, and ideas between the US and China from the late 19th century through the 20th century. Her first book, Mahjong, A Chinese Game and the Making of Modern American Culture, was published in 2021 by Oxford UP and explores the American history of the Chinese parlor game Mahjong in the first half of the 20th century. By recovering and analyzing the complex history of Mahjong, the book provides crucial insights into the formation of American ethnic identities, the role of women in transnational consumerism, and the significance of leisure as a source of cultural meaning and identity. In addition to her book, Professor Hines has published articles and essays on topics such as the new histories of home in global contexts, leisured domesticity in mid-20th century US, and re-evaluating teaching evaluations in journals like the American Historical Review, Frontiers, a Journal of Women's Studies, and Inside Higher Education. Her work has been featured on NPR in the episode Picking Up the Pieces of Mahjong from the radio show To the Best of Our Knowledge by PRX and Wisconsin Public Radio. And you can also watch a UO Today interview with Professor <laughs> Hines on the UO's, the OHC's YouTube channel. As a 2021-22 Oregon Community Center Faculty Research Fellow, Professor Hines will talk to us today uh, about her new book project, Collective, How Lesbian Feminists Reimagine Society. Please join me in welcoming Annalise Heinz. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. Um, and thanks especially to the Humanities Center for supporting me and this project. Um, and this is actually the first time I've given an actual full presentation on the work thus far um, on the second project. So, it's very exciting and a little nerve-wracking to um, share about it. Uh, and just keep in mind that I very much welcome your reactions and your feedback. This is really still in the early stages of research. Um, so big picture, my project is about lesbian feminist community building in the late 20th century from the 1970s through the 1990s. And out of this research, I plan to write my second book, um, tentatively titled Collective, How Lesbian Feminists Reimagined Society. And I also plan to publish a digital mapping project that overlaps with the book, but is also a standalone exhibit. And I'll explain more about that project in a few minutes. So just as a kind of overview, I'll provide a bit of background. Then I'll talk about the central idea of collective um, and explain the mapping project and then a little bit about uh, the sources I've gotten to get into here focused on Eugene and Oregon history. So in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, lesbian identified women organized political movements, published pathbreaking intellectual writing and artistic work, and created intentional communities. And these communities were more complex, more diverse, and more dynamic than the broad strokes with which they have been painted to the extent that they have been represented and historicized at all. 
In fact, much of my motivation to pursue this project comes from a feeling of great frustration about the persistent historical invisibility and erasure of lesbian history, both in the past and in scholarship. And this is often perpetuated even in current queer and LGBT historical scholarship, which has often included women only in as much as they appear in predominantly male spaces. Women's history, or in the words of my historical subjects, history, looks different. It requires historical methods, sources, and questions that pay attention to gender differentials in terms of access to public space, economic autonomy, and in the era I'm studying, intentional gender separatism and female-focused spaces. The lesbian-identified women I'm studying were acutely aware of this problem of erasure, and were also steeped in feminist efforts to recover women's history more generally. So they sought to prevent their own erasure by intentionally keeping and archiving their community sources from mimeographed newsletters to flyers for community dances and events, photographs, letters, and eventually emails, communal journals, and oral histories. And here I want to recognize the invaluable work of Linda Long to uh, create an institutional home for related materials here at U of O, particularly of the rural back to the land communities in Southern Oregon called the Lesbian Lands. And Linda also co-leads with Julie Rayskin the Eugene Lesbian Oral History Project. So the result is that we have one of the most significant collections of lesbian history in the world here at U of O. And these materials will be preserved and remain accessible, thanks to your work. <laughs> so the, these sources here are extremely important sources for my research, but I'll also be looking outside the region. And there have been a few other community efforts, such as the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist Herstory Project, um, among other community efforts. And in fact, this really poses a significant research challenge, um, one that I'm still figuring out and welcome ideas about, uh, to have so much material. <laughs> when, for example, there are more than 350 boxes in a single collection wherein every single one of those thousands of documents is in some way relevant to my project. Um, and it's the opposite of the research challenge in my first book about the Chinese game Mahjong, which no one had thought to archive. <laughs> so at the same time, also in this project, there, there was such an explosion of feminist work and community building at the time, much of which were kind of just ephemeral sparks um, that erupted and disappeared. So there is still a lot of work of recovery and chasing these um, invisible leads also to be done. So an important part of this project is understanding lesbian feminism in its many diverse manifestations. A lesbian feminist identity was defined by intentional gender and political ideologies as much as, if not more than, what could be called a sexual orientation. And they sought political, sexual, and personal liberation by building alternative communities enabled by economic self-sufficiency, along with establishing dozens of specific geographic areas of settlement, uh, both urban and rural. They created a national network of small businesses, including bookstores, auto repair shops, cafes, print shops, farms, and music production companies that sought to be self-supporting in a feminist community. 
And each type of venture praxis, or putting philosophy into action, was central. And the idea of the collective is really core to understanding this praxis across four main areas of societies, of society that lesbian feminists sought to reimagine. Economics, housing, systems of decision-making and authority, and political activism. And I'll just say a, a few words about each of those four areas. Certainly a lot more to learn and eventually to say about each of them as well. By living out these alternative possibilities, they reimagined human society and hoped to affect broader changes. For the economic collective, that really includes many different kinds of ventures, including natural food stores and feminist bookstores and more. But it also expands to alternative economies of broader resource and wealth sharing that are, that are quite radical. The iconic lesbian potluck, actually, is, is, is a form of gathering um, that is, in fact, a kind of collective embodied in a meal. And the Amazon bookstore, which is the first feminist bookstore in the world, um, in Minneapolis, came out of a housing cooperative that became also a bookstore. So, uh, house date for that? Yeah, 1972. Um, uh, housing uh, is another of the the kind of first things that people often think of when you hear the word collective, and that was another important piece of this. Um, so, a lot of the uh, collective housing, which ranged again from rural to urban, involved rejecting this idea of a nuclear family home which often structured in and was economically um, uh, structured as well to include women's subordination and domestic work and often isolation. So uh, uh, you can see in the images here, this kind of range from um, back to the land, rural communities to urban uh, apartments, as well as a community I recently learned about in Kansas City called Womantown, where people um, women uh, in the 80s and 90s bought up houses in a seven by seven square block radius in an affordable part of Kansas City to recreate a, the kinds of communities they experienced at summer women's festivals. Um, and this uh, image in the middle there is actually of the Furies, uh, Washington, D.C., um, extremely influential uh, um, intellectual and activist group that was itself also a housing collective in an apartment. But part of what I'm talking about with collective is really goes beyond the kind of logistical aspects of cooperative structures and um, the collective, although those are really important, um, to think about a broader framework that pushed against the elevation of the individual which they linked to patriarchy, imperialism, capitalist exploitation of people and natural resources, and hierarchical power structures more generally. Um, so a key part of this model of a collective was to rethink and reimagine systems of authority. So on the lands, um, consensus decision-making was a really important uh, structure, um, and this was often messy and contentious, um, but was a, was a hugely foundational part of the purpose of the lands. And so um, one of the important, important aspects of, of studying those kinds of societies and learning about them is seeing how 
consensus decision making um, without a lot of structure or knowledge or other examples of this, um, they hashed it out. And um, particularly some of the communities figured out some pretty amazing um, sustainable structures for something as, as complicated as uh, having consensus decision making on any significant decision in a group of people. Um, but it's also uh, related to editorial, things like editorial uh, authority and decision making. So this slide is of um, a range of images of, of just a snapshot of the many lesbian feminist publications of the time. And something that you see is that the word editor is often replaced by collective. It's not a single editor who's either given credit for or um, has sole decision-making authority. It is, again, an emphasis on uh, collective authority. Um, and we see this also in terms of um, political activism, trying to create political change. The emphasis was on participating in mass action um, and, again, uh, giving credit to the collective, giving credit to the group, not elevating great leaders. Um, and this is an image on the left of uh, Gabriel da Daniels and Merle Wu. And you can see the sign that Merle Wu is carrying. It's people of color, feminist Jews, gays, fight back. Again, this emphasis also on the larger kinds of political collectives, even in the context of um, sometimes separatism. Uh, and on the right is a picture of the extremely influential intellectual activist group, the Kambahi River Collective. Again, embodied in their name, in that statement, is collective, the Kambahi River Collective. That is uh, intentional and significant. And you can see also on Gabriel Daniel's shirt, woman writer, that's that connection between the importance of intellectual work and publication as a form of political action. Um, so the collective is this really important uh, form of praxis. And it relates to another key idea of my project. I argue that for lesbian feminists, the idea of the home, of dismantling a patriarchal private sphere, became a focus for reimagining liberation. And at building on generations of women's rights activists before them, really more than a century, um, lesbian feminists identified the historical roots of women's economic dependence and political exclusion as intertwined with their traditional subservience within patriarchal homes. So in order to realize an alternative to patriarchy, which included critiques of many isms, um, racism, classism, and anti-Semitism were often the most frequently repeated. They needed to both reimagine home and family and make homes in physical structures. Themes of home and family have long been central to queer history and in queer communities. And uh, often that idea has originated in a sense of displacement and family rejection. But the result is one of intentional homemaking, of homecoming, and of belonging. And one of the phrases that rings throughout oral histories with people who identify as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, and or queer across the many differences of generation and identities are phrases like, quote, I'm home now, and quote, we are family. 
And the sense of home the narrators and oral histories are referring to is not one based in single family housing, but instead in women-centered spaces for the lesbian narrators, including bars, bookstores, communal living, and political rallies. This is when people say, oh, I'm home, I'm home now. I've entered this bar, I see myself surrounded by women. Um, and publications, showing this again, um, shared at events through subscriptions and through feminist bookstores, helped establish a web of connection and the circulation of shared commitments and values. And through these networks, lesbian feminists created a distributed sense of home. So again, this, this broader expansion of and reimagining of what it meant to be home. And in this context, home was connected to the larger sense of belonging that narrators recognized in local and tangible women-centered feminist spaces, as well as a broader, again, network uh, of those spaces and communities. At least, that was the vision and the aim, how individuals experienced that sense of family and home intersected with race, class, and gender in ways that could fracture that sense of belonging. To use the language of the time, sisterhood is complicated. <laughs> so um, what I, I will turn to now is the um, mapping project that I mentioned earlier. Um, and that is really, again, focused on this idea of uh, the network, as well as identifying local nodes of community through mapping um, the uh, information in a particular publication called Lesbian Connection. And um, this itself has been a collaborative project, <laughs> in the, um, appropriately so. And Olivia and Anash have been such crucial uh, members of that team, inputting information, and we've been working with a digital historian at CU Denver named Cameron Blivens, um, who uh, doesn't, um, his own area of expertise doesn't relate to this history, but he knows this methodology and it's been super interesting and productive to have those kinds of crossover conversations. Um, and so uh, just as a brief kind of introduction, um, Lesbian Connection is one of, again, many publications that emerged at the time, and um, it is unique in that its sole purpose, um, or not sole purpose, but its primary purpose <clears throat> is to connect uh, lesbian-identified women wherever they live around the world. Um, and they're free to anyone who uh, identifies as lesbian and wants to be subscribe. At this point, you know, they ask for donations, encourage donations. It's part of a larger economic and resource sharing that's really common in these publications where it's more if you can, less if you can. That's the phrase over and over again. Um, and uh, so within them, they publish directories of individuals who sign up to be, um, uh, to, who volunteer to be potential contacts for people who are for example, traveling through, maybe they want to go to the lesbian lands in Southern Oregon and they're coming from Kansas and they need to know safe routes to get there. Who can we stay with, right? Who will, who is quite literally a kind of safe space for us to stay with um, and or simply trying to find community on the way, both of those. Um, and so there's a directory called the Contact Dyke Directory 
Um, and as a side note, um, you'll see that uh, that word dyke come up in this um, discourse. It's very much an inside word. It's still used as a slur, um, is connected to forms of violence, but within the community has also been reclaimed. So, um, uh, so anyway, that's a, a, a word to be used in community <laughs> um, and not externally. Sometimes people get confused about that. Um, so, uh, um, so the contact direct, dyke directory is really the heart of the project, but there's also, or the heart of the publication, but they're also publishing over, um, particularly in the 80s, they begin publishing directories of land groups around the country and in fact around the world, um, they, but it's certainly based mostly in the United States, as well as lots and lots of advertisements, um, many of which are from very small businesses that are people making feminist or lesbian uh, related jewelry in their homes and this is the way that they can then reach out to um, customers and uh, so it's mappable data in a way that isn't true for a lot of these more literary or politically oriented publications. Um, just decode the map a little yes. bit? I'm in fact going to take you to the map. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was um, once my computer catches up. Um, and as it thinks hard about exiting PowerPoint, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll add that um, what we've been able to so, um, is uh, we've we've now been able to um, uh, map more than fourteen hundred entries uh, from um, several different years, but this is really just the tip of the iceberg. And Lesbian Connection is it began in nineteen seventy four is actually still around today. Um, so uh, we have thus far mapped um, multiple issues between um, 1974 and 1989. But um, I'll just take you through a few of the tabs that show kind of what um, we're seeing that is already very suggestive. Uh, okay, let me try to make that bigger, okay. Um, so this is the overall dot map of all of the information that we've input thus far. And, and um, one of the things that stands out is that we're, we can certainly start to see nodes emerge, but there's also an incredible level of distribution. Um, and I'll zoom ahead by showing you a graph um, that is records by city, once it catches up. Sorry, my computer has been struggling recently. Okay, great. Um, and so this is, these are all the different locations that have been mapped. And you can see how long this list is and how long it keeps going. And one of the really remarkable things is that very often when you have a, a large data set, again, this is over 1,400 entries, you often see a kind of graph where it's like, a huge bar, and then half, and then half, and then half, and then half, it tapers off pretty extremely. This is actually not at all a, that kind of extreme differential between the top and the bottom. The, this largest city 
um, uh, or greatest number is also the greatest, the, the most populous city in the country, New York, New York or Manhattan. Specifically, we have Brooklyn and some of the boroughs listed separately. Notably, if you combine San Francisco, Berkeley, and Oakland, that would, the Bay Area, into a single Bay Area entry, um, that would actually be the largest by far. I mean, not by far, it would just be definite. Um, but you have, so even Manhattan, right, the most populous city in the country, certainly one that has been analyzed and acknowledged for particularly um, gay male history, that's uh, 2.6%. This is not an overwhelming kind of percentage. And it very quickly, you start to see lots and lots of different geographic representation. Um, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I, I don't know what the numbers mean, though. Like, is, like is that number of collective housing? Is that number of, like, all any, different any kind entries. of institution? All different entries. I'll, I'll show you... Um, some different of the like kinds of entities. Of members or number of collectives? Number uh, of, uh, this has nothing to do about how many people live in a particular place, like, this is about an entry in lesbian connection. So a bookstore, a mechanic exactly. shop, a collective. A contact dike, right, exactly, okay. exactly. Um, and so to address that question, I'll show you, um, this is a, a map where we have pulled apart some of the different kinds of entities. We've, that's how we're talking about them, is what are you locating on that map? And um, is it an archive, an art organization, a bookstore? Um, and you can then see, how do, those, how do those look different? What is that telling us? Um, if, for example, this is, again, and right now there's will be more to come, but like, um, this is interesting, right? These are multiple, so Indianapolis has six bookstores that have advertised in Lesbian Connection. That doesn't mean that they're exclusively uh, feminist bookstores or lesbian feminist bookstores. It does mean that they are part of that community. Um, so they may be a radical politics bookstore, or they might be some other thing. Um, and you're seeing a lot less representation in some of these more conservative regions, except for a few notable exceptions, um, and some of like the Western Plains states, for example. But then you go to like the um, individuals, contact dike directory, huge representation. Um, and often in places that don't have some of these other institutions. And so we can start asking questions of what is happening in these different places that you would have a um, multiple kinds of feminist press uh, presses. What would what is happening in a place where you have a bunch of people, but you don't have any other kinds of institutions? Um, what is happening where you do see a bunch of institutions? And you also start to see the importance. Um, I mean, certainly there are some like uh, important, but also predictable locations um, highlighted. But you start to see ones that are also surprising, and. Uh, one of the things that is notable is that particularly outside of some of the, the coastal metropolitan areas or places like Chicago, um, colleges and universities become really important organization um, at nodes. And that is directly linked, I think, and that has been borne out thus far, 
with the growth of women's studies in universities. Um, and so these become uh, places that there is some kind of community building and support, but it also means like, for example, when um, a lesbian feminist group was um, evicted from their, uh, or the landlord tried to evict them um, from the house, the place that they were renting, once the landlady actually figured out that it was a bunch of lesbians who were renting it, uh, they couldn't afford, right, to, to hire a random lawyer, but because they had connections to the university, they contacted a law professor who represented them pro bono and successfully prevented the eviction. She then just doubled the rent and <laughs> effectively kicked them out that way. Um, and so you can see also the, the range of what, what's happening in each of these places. And you start to see that also from the text, it, even within um, a single publication like Lesbian Connection that is really thinking about place and space and network. Um, and uh, so it, it provokes a lot of really interesting and useful questions that we have not asked or um, at least have not been able to kind of study on this scale before. Um, and we also don't have lots of kinds of information in a map like this. One of the things that um, some other uh, projects that exist are, are trying to address are uh, crowdsource projects that um, ask people to map um, their queer experience. That's a much more kind of ephemeral, um, much more uh, dynamic type of invisible map. Um, there are also travel guides that existed um, for some, for a few for gay men, a few for uh, lesbians. Again, with the idea that um, many times traveling through, particularly if you were um, non-normative in some way, it was not safe for you to be traveling through and, and um, asking to stay as two men especially, but also two women in a hotel room, for example. And um, so, but there are also ways of like, how do you enjoy a place? How do you get to know other people in a place? And so travel guides often highlight places like bars. Um, and bars are almost non-existent in Lesbian Connection. Even though we know that they were important uh, on a local basis, that's not necessarily who's gonna be advertising for this broader network. You'd go to the place, you go to the bookstore, and maybe people at the bookstore then would tell you where to go. Um, but so you, so you get different kinds of information um, from these different kinds of sources. Are you noticing changes over time? And how is it changing? Yeah. You know, right now, uh -huh. we are hesitant to put too much information on change over time, because it relates so much to what we have mapped. Yeah. Um, so like, I'll show you, you know, these are the numbers according to year, but this is partially because in 1984 and 1986, what got put into this map was a specific part of the, those two issues, whereas, and we have two issues re represented in 1987, so it's just not, it's not we don't have that. The doesn't yeah. necessarily right. yeah, accurately reflect. Right. Uh -huh. And part of what you're seeing, too, is like the growth of the publication itself, right? Of just yeah. it getting broader known and it becoming um, uh, more widespread. But you certainly can see how it, roughs, it roughly maps on, particularly like the growth of land groups, 
when those directories become a kind of standalone directory as opposed to just people writing in and being one of many listings, they get their own directory. That's telling us something, right? Um, and, um, uh, I, you know, there are other ways in which we're getting information uh, from other kinds of sources about how people were using lesbian connection at like the, um, that community I just mentioned, Womantown in Kansas City, where people were um, intentionally buying up uh, housing where they could afford it at, to create this community, they, were, they advertised in Lesbian Connection. So people were coming from lots of different parts of the, con of the country and hearing about it because they were actually reaching out through this publication. Um, and again, you can see like how this relates also to content type, right? We have directory, um, listings, advertisements, as well as um, uh, then the recording things by entity and place. So, um, and I'll just, as a brief kind of, uh, again, based on what we have done so far, you can see how much of the heart of a lot of lesbian connection, and particularly the mappable data <laughs> that's within it, as opposed to just a letter someone's writing in and not necessarily including um, a particular city, uh, but also businesses and then publications, organizations, publishing presses, travel or lodging, bookstores, those kinds of things. Um, and not yet, Nanashi, were you going to add something? Oh, I, ask I was about to ask actually you and Olivia oh, if you have anything you wanted to add. Oh well, what I, I want to ask is, it looks like the contact dike directory is side of, of. I mean, it could be looked at separately. And so I'm just curious if you if you've had a chance to run these numbers in a graph without that without an outlier, just because of the space that the other. Um, Sort of entries take up, you know, they're paragraphs long versus these one line uh, entries. I don't know if that would make a difference. But Are you talking about the percentage of actual like uh, content in the in the publication that is the directory versus? Is that what you mean? Right. Like I assume, like what I'm looking at is out of a hundred percent. Right. And so if we remove the contact directory, does um. that change the the way you look at this graph or mm. this? Good question. We have that in the mapping context. We don't have it for the graph, but this is a map that includes, um, this is just the contact dike directory locations, and this is everything else. Oh, okay. Again, really, really interesting on in the ways that, that that does and doesn't overlap. So did you sit down in the reading room and look at these publications and then type in information about the ads for bookstores and great question so Olivia and I did a lot of this work um, and uh, and I'm actually I'm also working with a couple of undergraduates right now who are working or one undergraduate who's working on it right now Molly hopefully is going to be working on it soon um, and uh, the lesbian connection is part of a digitized um, collection independent voices uh, that JSTOR bought um, and then so Part of the problem, though, is that they stop in 89. So one of the things we're going to have to do is get past 89. Um, and uh, that, those are not digitized. Yeah. Um, there was a big project to digitize a lot of these newsletters and magazines. Right. Um, yeah. 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 I That's, think it was Adam Mackey, but I'm not sure. 
if you know of any of the other sources, right, because of um, the, again, the nature of lesbian connection as opposed to a magazine that's, you know, full of articles about um, politics or full of poetry or full of, uh, you know, other kinds of prose and text, um, we aren't mapping those in the same way. We're really using um, lesbian connection as a mappable, it is something that is kind of made to be mapped. Um, so you again, only that has use its own. lesbian connection for this. Project. For this, I'll yes, okay. not for my larger project, okay. but for the for, for this, this. Okay, for this exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so just as a, in a few minutes I have left, um, I'll go back um, and yeah. If there are other questions or comments from um, those who have worked on it. Please, again, at the end, please feel free to bring that up. Um, okay. Um, so uh, part of my project then is also focusing in on and getting to know specific communities. Um, and I have to make decisions about what those communities are going to be. Um, always with those questions and ideas of uh, the collective and of home. Um, so lesbian feminist communities often took root in smaller cities, which uh, were often connected to universities like I talked about, or relatively more affordable locations. Um, and so places like Eugene, Oregon, Lansing and East Lansing, Michigan, Fayetteville, Arkansas, Oakland, California, each of those are quite different from each other, but they share core commitments and overlapping community institutions and alternative economies. So I'll just um, briefly now talk about some of the sources that I've looked at um, and thought about here, because Eugene was a nationally important site. Uh, and this is a part of the Eugene Lesbian Oral History Project um, their uh, online archive focused on alternative economies. So hundreds of lesbian identified women migrated to Eugene from the 1960s through the 90s and their political activism and economic infrastructure really shaped the region. So uh, thousands of women from all over the world visited lesbian lands during their peak in the 19, late 1970s through 1980s in southern Oregon and the lands were really connected to the community in Eugene. So uh, I wanna um, think about these lands in the particularly in the context of this question of reimagining home. So communes or collectives were a physical embodiment of remaking society. And the, each of the land communities had really significant differences between them but there were some common aspects. They forged new forms of spirituality rooted in ecofeminism and alternative spiritualities like astrology and I Ching. And um, that it's clear to me actually how important the spiritual aspects were um, and how integrated that was, particularly in the lands, in part also of reimagining decision-making. So um, taking tarot readings or astrology was in, was integrated with communal decision making and passing the the rattle, um, and uh, so that was a, a commonality. Um, and there are also 
agricultural ventures um, and ways of living sustainably on the land, generally without the benefit of running water or electricity. Almost, almost none of them had um, electricity. Uh, and at each of them, the physical act of homemaking played a central role in how residents understood themselves and their communities. In contrast to ba other back-to-the-land communities at the time, with um, men and women in particular, many of which relied on traditional gender roles in labor distribution, the, quote, land sisters sought to cultivate skills and confidence in male-dominated construction tasks. Residents celebrated their physical strength and ability to shoulder loads of wood, carry containers of water uphill long distances, and create housing with reclaimed materials that structured in their visions of communal space and also uh, um, were not necessarily even meant to be permanent. Um, and T. Corinne, a really uh, important uh, photographer of these communities, talks about how um, you know, so many of these communities also had people moving in and out of them all the time. The structures were, were the continuity. People would ask after a specific house um, that each had its own name rather than asking necessarily about someone who probably wasn't there anymore. Uh, so the, the cultural and ideological elements that defined these homes, including collaborative work and rejection of gender norms, were manifest through the physical construction of home spaces on women's lands. Here you can see this kind of collaborative uh, barn raising type approach using reclaimed and recycled materials. Um, and so part of why these uh, communities and these questions matter is that I think with a lot of the radicalism and um, re-envisioning of society, I think we can learn uh, from a lot of hard effort, a lot of pain, um, and uh, productive disagreement, as well as unproductive disagreement, models of things like uh, a more distributed authority. Uh, and um, it's part of a longer history of utopianism in America. Um, there are also a lot of seeds of current debates and divisions, particularly uh, in progressive and feminist politics, around race and gender in particular. Um, and these communities were often, as I talked about, ephemeral, but could be extremely influential, even in that, and sometimes because of that ephemerality. Uh, so in working against a broader context of the erasure of women's history and lesbians' history, I think that this, uh, these communities deserve sustained attention. Thank you. <laughs> so let me ask the first question since I'm, I'm <laughs> right. prerogative to do that. Um, so you just mentioned that in some ways the seeds of current debates were planted in these in these communities. And you know the um, the kind of story that sort of we that you know that I have mm -hmm. is that um, these communities were completely dominated by white women, and, and mostly from middle class backgrounds. And my sense from your project is that one of the things that you're complicating is that mythology. So tell us about the, those aspects of these communities. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, popular understanding of lesbian feminist communities really paint them as ent ent often entirely white. Yeah. Um, 
which is not true um, and further erases the important contributions and experiences of women of color. Um, and it is also true that, I mean, depending on the region, uh, often they were certainly majority white. Um, and this relates both to specific uh, regional histories, such as the larger, you know, um, uh, Oregonian and Northwestern history of uh, settler colonialism and white supremacy and, and just a uh, majority white population. Uh, it is also um, that that, re that regional story really changes depending on where you're looking. And so um, the politics that undergird each community um, shape who wanted to and felt comfortable participating in it. Um, and although there's a lot of overlap between the politics, there's also a lot of differences. So if you look, for example, at Oakland, um, that is uh, uh, a community emerging in the context of larger radical pol Bay Area politics um, and often actually much more likely to reject things like academics and academia, um, so a lot less of a connection with the university system there, um, and uh, much more driven by what at the time was called um, third world women or the third world movement of colonized people around the world, people of color, um, and uh, those were the politics that drove um, the, uh, the lesbian feminist organizing as well. So there was a much um, higher uh, rate of, of you know, diversity um, in terms of ethnicity and race. And um, there is also, I mean, for the reasons laid out by the Kambahi River Collective, among others, um, women of color were less likely to participate in separatist communities in particular, which again is actually not the same as a lot of, I mean, this is again, it exists on a spectrum. And um, land communities tended to be the most, the most specifically separatist. Um, and uh, the women of color were often less, less likely, never uh, exclusively, but less likely to want to participate in separatism because so many of their political allies who could understand struggles around race and ethnicity and class were not, did not identify as women. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and often their white quote sisters did not understand those kinds of struggles, even though actually I think that too is somewhat overpainted in the sense when you look at these communal um, diaries, uh, everything that they're talking about is like about strugg struggles and self-criticism around race and class and anti-Semitism. And, um, and so there was a lot more engagement with an anti-racist politics, but as we can see in like Northwest progressive circles, it was often a white dominated anti form of anti-racism, which is not necessarily what a woman of color wants to participate in. Um, but what's interesting, you know, l listening to um, interviewees, like in the Eugene Lesbian Oral History Project, uh, one of the few African-American um, women who what, uh, was in it talked about her experience, both as a woman of color in Eugene um, and experiences of racism in a really dominantly white community, um, and uh, her desire to live on the land. She says, I really wanted to live on the land. I never got to be a separatist because my 
my partner at the time had a son and he would male children depending on which land you were in was were not were not included and so she wasn't expressing even resentment about the the separatist uh politics she wanted to participate in it and was like oh, this, my partner's dragging me down over here you know so it was so interesting um and really what she identified as her connection and and that kind of i felt you know she didn't use this language but that kind of model of when I know I'm at home, it was about the spirituality. It was like she participated in the linking the female with the divine. And so she's like, yeah, that's, that, those are my people. And that was the most important kind of organizing structure for her. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was interested, uh, because you were talking about this in the past tense, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> there is an historical moment for this. Uh, and it, of course, extends beyond uh, lesbian feminists. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a sort of historical moment for communes, collectives, mm -hmm. intentional communities. Right. I'm talking about in the recent past. Of course, the 19th century is a whole other story. Yeah. But, but uh, I wondered if, if it's too difficult, and of course, you do have the maps, uh, <laughs> to uh, say a little bit more about when this moment sort of wound down for this sort of intentional community collective. Yeah. I, I, I saw the uh, star flower yep. one, but that's very local and mm -hmm. it was, I guess, unique in its own way. So if you could say a little bit more generally about how these collective intentional communities evolved and how they're affecting us today in the present. <laughs> yeah, and Linda can definitely speak with much finer grain detail about e e this region in particular. Um, but the um, one of my big questions that I, so uh, my answer will be tentative, but one of my big questions is about temporality of like, when, when are we talking about? I, however, pretty consistently, what we see is, as always, Longer historical roots, certainly longer tendrils into the present, very much into the present. Like I said, lesbian connection is still around. A number of these land communities are still around. Um, but there is a, there is a peak. <laughs> and it really is, um, the seems to be that um, in the, by the mid 90s, you start to see a significant restructuring. And part of that is an economic story because What's happening in these communities um, are uh, some of the ways in which they're they're building uh, an infrastructure, including with things like bookstores, which are super important. Um, is that bookstores are just independent bookstores are massively undermined first by the big box stores, um, you know, Barnes and Noble, Borders, and then of course by the behemoth. Amazon. Um, and if you've ever read the wonderful comic by Alison Bechdel, Dykes to watch out for, her, her, her community is largely structured around a feminist bookstore as represented in the comic strip, and you see the whole thing. <laughs> um, but she uses these great kind of uh, pseudonyms, so it's like, anyway, I, I won't go too deep into the <laughs> Dykes to watch out for lore. But um, so there's an economic infrastructure piece there's a part about a larger kind of, as you're saying, a larger 
uh, national um, mm -hmm. shift away from some of these alternative communities and economies and politics. Part of that is things become less affordable. It's much harder to um, make it work. <laughs> um, rent is no longer $25 a month mm -hmm. if you're sharing a room. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of, with the rise of neoliberal um, uh, structuring of economy and politics, there is, this is part of that story too. Um, I think there's, there are other strands of the story that are unique to lesbian feminism, but um, including what it means to, in the, in the 21st century, this is not what's happening in the 90s, but later, you have some of the questions about mainstreaming and then what does it mean to have um, lesbian identified spaces in the, our current moment around gender diversity. What does this mean to have women oriented spaces? Lots of questions and, and changing meanings of those contemporary. But in the mid 90s, that it wasn't so much the mainstreaming piece that was changing. Um, it was these some of these other things. There's also demographics, right? I mean, because when I came in 95, Mother Callie's was going yeah. strong still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But she was getting to retirement age, and then right. the economic factor was another one. Mm. Totally. And to your point, this isn't just a uniform kind of cutoff day. I think and a, a lot of these lands actually last longer, particularly in Southern Oregon, mm. than some of the, uh, you know, than the larger uh, 70s communes or 60s communes kind of story. Um, and they, they do. They, they last longer. But today, a lot of those residents, I mean, they're living without running water and electricity oftentimes in their, you know, 70s and, and yeah. early 80s, and there's lots of questions about that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm still figuring that out. And Molly, I know you, you're working on related things, so feel free to pipe in if you ever have a, something to add. <laughs> or, yes. Oh, I'm not oh, sure yeah. you can see a hand back yeah. Yeah, great. Um, thank you. Uh, so the um, why map this is in part precisely because it was um, uh, more invisible and kind of in community, and that also means that, uh, as you use the word protected, um, that both created safe spaces and then also, and this is part of the larger story of lesbian history, um, lends to its erasure, right? <laughs> Intentional invisibility then can create the illusion that you never existed. Exactly. Um, and so, and to your point, Lesbian Connection is very intentional because they want to reach out to people in wherever they are. Um, they still mail it in um, a brown manila envelope and 
there lesbian does not appear anywhere on the outside um <laughs> and that's important and you know they there's other work like in canada around queer geography and particularly um lesbians connection connecting across huge um areas of space in canada um and in these conservative communities where one woman was saying i I like take not to lesbian connection, but to the, I think it was like the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, the Canadian version of that. Um, and they uh, said, you know, take me off your mailing list. I cannot even put you, the name of your organization on, if I want to mail you a check, I can't even put that on an, an envelope because it's not just coming to my house. If I bring this and drop this off at the post office, I know the postmaster and they can figure out who's the person in town who's mailing this letter. Like you can't have this. So it's, you know, very um, important that that was um, uh, um, private. And we're, we're only, we are in our own database, we're recording. Like if, if someone has um, a PO box as opposed to a mailing address, because often PO boxes were used to, create some privacy or distance, and we're not publishing um, street-level data. This is city-level data. And part of that is because of where we're at in the project, the project, the project intentional. Like, this was, again, always meant, people would always say, but they would also say, the publishers would say, like, be aware. This is, we can't control who eventually gets this information. And sometimes people would write in and say, Please take me off the contact dike list because I'm getting these harassing calls. You know, it, it did get out there somehow. Um, so, uh, you know, there. Um, but I think that seeing that 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 basically, if you representation matters, <laughs> um, and and history is not just the things that um, are obvious and archived, and um, although in this case, right, <laughs> archived, um, and uh, seen as uh, seen in public. That's part of why we have this historical erasure, particularly of women-oriented women, because they're so much less likely to be able to access the thing that is in the public. So you're creating an alternative public. And this is, and we see that actually in lots of different cultures, or patriarchal cultures around the world. Um, and here is a way into understanding that alternative public. Um, yeah, I, anyway, I know there were other parts of your question, but happy to talk more. I'd love to learn about your, what you're working on. I'm like, trying to formulate this in, or several things into a question that I can't, but I also thought your second video was so fantastic. <laughs> and your math is like mind-blowing in terms of digital humanities projects on LGBT things. Like, I've never seen anything like that. Oh, great. Honestly, it's really... Impressive, and I was thinking also about the. I think your focus on home is so so interesting, and that'll be useful for my own project. <laughs> but I was thinking of it as an anthropologist. I think of it as place. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to think of the what's the relationship between home mm -hmm. and place, and I think mm -hmm. this gets at geographies as well. Yep. And to comment on that as well, <laughs> I know you know I'm going to go do my work at Lesbian Connection. And I know that it's a Michigan-based thing, and I know that they also have a Michigan contact dike. But it's really striking to me on the map that it's not Midwest-centered, and this really goes back to support your argument that this is a whole national network of like, homeness. So I'd, 
Sarah, I don't have a question, but I have like a lot more questions for you, but I would love to hear more about the use of poem. And yes, I and I would love to, to be, yeah, be in conversation with you about that. I think this question of language is super interesting and important, and you're right. I'm not actually seeing a lot of, I, I think in, in cultural geography and in queer geography, we aren't seeing people use the word home. It tends to be place or um, space, uh, but not just the literal kind of spatial history, but also this idea of a kind of social space. There was some other word that I just ran across that was Circle in the- Circle is a word that's used a lot. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that, I mean, I think that um, the part of the reason I use home, and this could change over the course of the project, but, um, uh, why I'm why I'm using it now um, is mul multiple reasons. One is that it's part of what I hear from the sources. Again, this idea of oh, that's I'm home. I'm home now, and you know, they're not talking about a house. Um, and uh, so, really, like paying attention to um, that, particularly in oral, oral histories, is where is where I hear that so much. Um, and uh, and the larger kind of idea of queer family, of course, the language around family is really important in queer community building. Um, and uh, so home and family are linguistical um, things that people have used throughout, throughout the 20th century into today to describe the um, community building. And so I want to pay attention to that. Um, and then within the kind of specifics of lesbian history, again, how um, home has been uh, in, in Anglo-American constructed and influenced American society, um, uh, the idea of home has played such a huge role in um, shaping economic policy and vice versa. You know, it's a reciprocal kind of um, way of organizing uh, um, society and so liberation, the women's liberation really depended on rethinking the home in a way that's very that is gender distinct, and I think is an important piece of understanding how lesbian history is different from gay male history is different from other forms of queer history, um, and it gets at this again kind of this alternative public. It it gets at this tension between the public and the private. And um, that is a part of a broader kind of set of, of organizing um, frameworks of understanding women's history, but also society more generally, right? These are kind of core, lots of the, the question of the public um, is so uh, important in understanding kind of um, human societies in, in different ways. And so that, that tension of um, the public and the private reimagining that, creating a distributed sense of home, creating an alternative public. What are the ways in which so many of those things are invisible? All of that has to do, to me, like home is, is, is does a lot of, it's at the heart of it. <laughs> it's also the thing that connects my two very different book projects. <laughs> I know. Communities in Oregon because we have the Alpha Farm records. That is a community that's still going. I mean, it's very mm. vibrant. 
started, I think, in 70, 70 or 71. Uh, I'd love to get the records of uh, <laughs> Mountain Grove, which I, is another heterosexual commune down in Wolf Creek, where the Mountain Groves first lived, and they took their shared last name from that. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. Mountain Groves are from a yeah. heterosexual commune? That doesn't yeah. make sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah I know you really told me about their very sexist experience there. Right. <laughs> uh, but it would be really fascinating to compare these different communities. Definitely. Yes. Um, I, I, I think there's so much, these are incredibly rich um, sources and there are so many important questions yet to be, yet